as well. Boy, he is risen. What a great day. It's Easter. Praise God. I, uh, I saw an admonition that uh, someone posted that on Friday, we shouldn't be talking about the resurrection. We should only be talking about the cross. And I found that interesting. And they, they really went on to say, let's focus on the cross and save Sunday for the resurrection. Now, why should we separate those two? I think they're inseparable. You think about some of the passages. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And he's talking about life and crucified life altogether. And the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Over in Philippians, he said uh, that I may know him. Think about this. Paul, who's had personal revelations of Jesus. I mean, face-to-face revelations with Jesus. Has the audacity to say that I may know him. It, doesn't that give you the clue that you'll never exhaust knowing him? He said, that I may know him, and know him in what way? The power of his resurrection, and the very next thing is the fellowship of his suffering. Being made conformable to his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. And I, and I, I saw that, and I was like, you know, that's what happens when we make an anniversary too much. Instead of the daily, substantive, life-giving victory that Jesus gives through his death and resurrection every day, not just once a year, like May 20, September 16. You know what's significant about those dates? I don't know there is any. <laughs> Until they arrive, and guess what? It is the day the Lord has made for us to walk the crucified life through his resurrection. Now, the title of the day, I, don't, I, I just was a little strained to give you a, a good title on this, but here it is. It's Splendor amid simplicity. How's that? That, that really fired you up right there, didn't it? Uh, I don't even know if it sufficiently hints at what I want to try to say this morning. Um, and it's not difficult to see the simplicity of Christ and his ministry. I mean, he stayed within one locale, never wrote a book. Uh, a lot of things he did not do. He, he does not come across as a complex person, does he? All the stories, all the parables, they're like ordinary stories about ordinary life. You never see him or hear him. Even the sermon that Matthew records, we call Sermon on the Mount, you go through this oral review of ethics and morality, and there's nothing in that complicated. It's all almost common sense, right? How people are to deal with each other, how they should approach prayer, how should they approach fasting. It's just because... He was bringing a simplicity to life. He could have probably given us the theory of relativity himself. And not waited for someone from born in Germany to do that for us. We celebrate the splendor of the resurrection. But it's also the simplicity of it that I want us to take a look at. Um, splendor. If you don't know a definition, I'll just give you two or three words that you'll find in Webster. 
It means brilliancy, a brightness, a luster, magnificent pomp. And some of the words associated with it is augustness. Now, we use that word all the time. That, that experience was filled with augustus. Resplendous, superbness, stateliness, grandness. And can I ask you, when you look at the cross, when you see these uh, pictures of Jesus hanging on the cross, does that conjure up words of beautiful to you? Splendor? Wonder? I mean, there is a wonder to the cross. But I don't think we would describe that picture as beautiful. I don't think we would describe it as magnificent, even though it, it did a magnificent work. I don't think these are the words, but it goes, the, the splendor of the cross is hidden in the simplicity of it. So what do we see when we look at the cross? We're going to kind of talk about both of them this morning. What do we see when we look at the cross of Christ? And I'll give you some things in, in, in the back of the handout that you have. There's a paradox in the cross, and I want to just kind of look at it from where is the paradox in the cross of Christ? And the first thing is the brutality sandwiched with care. You think about the cross, when you look at the cross and when we get a good picture of the cross, it's really repulsive. It's kind of a, the ultimate punishment of a slow death, a torturous death. It was devised by probably the Greeks, but the Romans mastered it. It was the most feared condemnation you could get is death by crucifixion because it was supposed to last for days and some people would hang on a cross for days before they expired. The only reason why we have the story we have in the Gospels is that the next day was going to be a Sabbath and they would not allow people to be hanging on a cross for a Sabbath. But it was one of the, those, those things that was repulsive and brutal. It was the people that were condemned dreaded that experience. Jesus, after he was tortured, after he was beaten, he was beaten twice. He was beaten up by the Pharisees. They, they beat him up. They slapped him. They spit on him. They pulled his beard. They just roughed him up, and then they turned him over to the Romans who were professionals at this. And when Pontius Pilate turned him over to those soldiers, these were men who relished the idea that they were good at their craft. And it was torturing someone to the point to where they didn't kill them, but they saved them for the impalement on the cross. And this is what Jesus went through. But while he's in this mess, this battered mess, looking down from the cross, this is one of the things, this is in John chapter 19. This is one of the things he does. There's seven sayings. Author Pink has a little book on the seven sayings of the cross that, that is one of the few books in my library that does not leave my office. It's an old book, but it's just, he reviews those seven sayings from the cross. And one of them is in John 19 when it says, When Jesus saw his mother there, he is battered, he was beaten, he has had significant loss of blood by the time he's even spiked to that cross. He sees his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is John, standing next to her, and he says to her woman, here is your son. And he says to John, here is your mother. And John adds from that point on, this disciple, he hardly ever refers to himself, this disciple took her into his home. So there he is in this kind of like barely alive state. 
this brutality picture. And what is he doing? He's speaking the care of his mother. We're not talking about someone that's on the deathbed. And, and if you've ever been there where they've given you some final words. I, re, I remember Marshall Abels. I was there the day before he passed away. And he was whispering something to me. And I'd been praying for him. I knew he was getting close. And I leaned over to hear exactly what he was telling me. And he had told me sometime back that he didn't want gifts. He wanted donations to the Gideons. And so he was trying to tell me something the day before he died. And I leaned over and he says, don't forget the Bibles. He was still thinking about what he wanted to do as the last action of his life. It wasn't that Jesus was being cared for on a bed of comfort, tended to by people. While he was in agony, he still has the capacity to care for his mother. Those two things just seem foreign to each other, don't they? That they don't go together. This brutal scene, and he's talking to his mom, and he's assuring her that he cares about her, and he gives John the responsibility to make sure she's okay, and it was the oldest son's responsibility to take care of his parents in that culture. And he's doing that. And then you see the mockery alongside forgiveness. I want to take you to Matthew 27. Most of what I'm sharing with you comes from Matthew 27. In Matthew 28, we'll dive into that a little bit. This is, this is constant harassment while he's hanging on the cross. He's already been beaten to the point of death. And these people are just badgering him. Read this, with, this is verse 39. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple... And build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In a mocking way, they went on. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders, they mocked him. They were turning around and, and saying, He saved others. Look at him. He can't even save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now. And we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And in the same way, the rebels, the two men next to him, they were heaping insults on him. We kind of missed that point that both of them at one point were laying into him as well. He is in the middle of suffering and all he's hearing around him is people deriding him. Mocking him, challenging him. Oh, you did such great things. Where's your great things now? That's kind of hard to picture that him being beaten and crucified was not enough for them. They had to do this harassment the whole time. On and on and on it went. Now, in those seven sayings, Jesus speaks to his mother and John. He speaks to the thief later on who said to him, Lord, when you come in your kingdom, would you remember me? Then he has a conversation with him. He did not start that conversation, but he, he responded to it. And then he talks to the father on multiple times. He quotes Psalm 22, one of David's songs, My God, my God, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabbatani, why have you forsaken me? He's talking to the father. He never talks to any of those people. 
Isn't it amazing? I'm telling you, most of us in this room could not help ourselves. <laughs> you know, knowing who he is, and we thought, that you just wait. When I come back, it's not going to be good for y'all. Right? Because I think the neatest thing he could have done is after he was raised from the dead the next night, walk into Pilate's bedroom and says, Hey, remember me, buddy? <laughs> you know, that's what we would do. Like, it's time for people to pay. But he didn't say any, he didn't respond to any of that. That was the amazing thing about Jesus. Even when Pilate was in front of him, he says, Don't, You're not going to say anything? You're not going to respond? Don't you know what you're facing? And he did not respond. He just was like a lamb to the slaughter. But he did refer to them, did he not? In one of those sayings. What did he say? They're just beating him to pieces with their words. And he looks up and he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I want to tell you something. Humanly, those two things don't sit side by side. The absolute height of mockery. And he's asking for the Father to forgive them. Jesus also had peace on the cross along with his pain. That's that next point. The cross has a simplicity to it. But the splendor is hidden in that simplicity. Father, into your hands... Into your hands I what? I commit my spirit. I give my spirit into your hands. And one of the lyrics in the song is one word in the Greek, tetelestai. It is finished. And when he said that, it was over with. He breathed his last and he, he was dead. So the last two things he was talking to the Father about was putting this enormous trust in the hands of the Father. Jesus told people one time, he says, no man takes my life from me. You remember that? And he followed that up by saying, I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it back up. But do you realize that he, had, he practiced that first part of that, but he gave the latter part of that to the Father? When he said, Father, into your hands, in other words, he said, I am not going to have any part in my resurrection, it's all up to you. I'm putting my... He's actually saying, Father, I trust the cup that you have given me. I trust the commitment that you have to me. I know you will take care of me. And he, when he left there, he did not leave there fearful. He left there with peace. He was giving himself to the Father. And I don't know what all happened after that. The, the, those three days... All of Friday and, and sat, the rest of Friday is Saturday. And we don't, know, we, we don't know what Jesus did in spirit. We know his body was still in that tomb. But we don't know. Well, we do know this. That he escorted the guy next to him to paradise. And for some reason, I just think paradise probably means that it was something good. <laughs> but there's some people that believe he went to hell went to regions of hell. And then there's passages that are problematic. It's just like we're not told exactly what he did. But we do know this. His spirit was in the Father's hands. And whatever he did, he did along with the Father's blessing. 
I'm going to shift to the cemetery scene. I have a little quirk. Brenda and the kids really, bless their hearts, they just was worried about me at some point. Because on the way to Mississippi, and when we was there, I said, I need to drive by a cemetery. I need to take some pictures of headstones. And <laughs> kids like, do we have to go to another cemetery? And I was like, yes, we do. Because I'm researching Brenda's family. I want to know all about her background. How about that? But uh, I just, I, I, when I'm in a cemetery, I walk around. I, I look because all of those are stories. All those people matter. The veterans' headstones that I look at and children and teenagers. And there's, just, there's an array of ages there. Death is no respecter of persons. But it just, I, I, I feel an awe about being in that place with them. And, and cemeteries, people, probably a lot of here, don't even want to go to a cemetery. Now, I, don't, I just don't go to any cemetery, okay? I don't want you worrying about me. I'm highly selective what cemeteries I go to. But you think about when they saw Jesus die, you would think that those scribes and Pharisees were like, yes, <laughs> problem solved, right? They didn't think that. And there's good reason why they didn't think that. I mean, there was an unannounced three-hour eclipse from 12 to 3 p.m., when it got dark, and when he finally said it is finished and died, there was an earthquake. All the way into the temple inside Jerusalem that caused the veil to be ripped from top to bottom. But a lot of people miss this point too, and it's in Matthew. That earthquake disturbed some graves. And people came out of the grave. That would have got my attention right off the bat. Hey, what are you doing here? Hey, our uncle's walking around. How about that? Whoa, how? You know, if I was the scribes and Pharisees and seeing that, and in fact, these hardened Roman soldiers witnessing this were standing there saying, this guy really must have been the son of God. Well, that was a reach for them. Earthquake, eclipse, people walking out of graves. I think they should know something's really going on here. And they took his body down, prepared it, and, and they, they could prepare it within less than an hour with the way they wrapped and put spices, and they, they did it hastily because the Sabbath was just about to commence with sundown. So they hurried and put his body in that tomb. And the next day, you find this in Matthew 27, the next day, on a Sabbath day, <laughs> these guys are worried. They're not content, like, okay, he died, but... Uh. And so they go to Pilate and says, you know what? They've been saying that three days later he's going to be raised from the dead. And, and that deceiver, it's in Matthew 27 there. I don't know if he's got it up on the screen. But they, that deceiver said that, and, and uh, you need to make the tomb, the tomb secure. And so I, I think at this point Pilate's like, whatever. Your people are getting on my nerves. He says, go take a guard, do whatever you need to do. And so they, they really said, if they come and steal his body, we got a bigger problem now. So they went and, and put the seal of Rome on it. 
Verse 66, so they went and made the tomb secure by putting the seal on the stone and posting the guard, the seal of Rome. Oh, that's going to stop what's going to happen, right? What do you think the angels, when they came down <laughs> that day, says, well, there's some kind of funny symbol on this stone. wonder what that's about. Pilate thought it was like, okay, that'll do it. When heaven's power comes down, Roman law means nothing. And when that angel came down and hit the ground, the stone moved, and these soldiers passed out. And when they kind of got gathered back together, they headed out. I don't blame them. This is where sorrow meets unspeakable joy because here comes these ladies to take care of putting more spices on the shroud that Jesus was wrapped in. This was all to keep the decay from getting too bad as odor. We do know now that in Psalms it was prophesied that his body would not see any decay. It was preserved from decay. But they go there, and in verse, uh, I think is well, let me just take you to Matthew 28, verse 1. When they go there, they're ready to add these spices. And it says, after the Sabbath at dawn, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. The appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. <laughs> Don't you like how they do that? Don't be afraid. Just earthquake in me. <laughs> Don't be afraid. It's okay. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see where he was laying. Because those clothes are still there, but he's not there. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Oh, the joy. Here they come with this heavy bag of spices. I just think maybe that bag of spices got left there or it probably reduced its weight by half because I just think probably they had a total mood change from sadness grieving and now they're leaving a cemetery with hope still afraid but filled with joy and then right after that in verse 9 Mary and the other women meet the king Matthew 29, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings! <laughs> I don't know, this is just, this strikes me as humorous. Greetings! Um, I don't know, there's maybe something weird about me because it's just like, okay, that's him, yeah, that's him. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Think about that. I know in one place it said that Jesus told him not to touch him, but it's really translated better. He is telling him, don't hold on to me. There is a difference. He doesn't have any problem with it. What they were doing was, what else could they do? What else would there be to do? 
they hit the deck in front of him, grabbed his feet, and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, just like the angels, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. They talked to an angel, and moments later, they're facing the risen Jesus who just appeared to them. And after he said that, disappeared. But he gave them instructions. You go tell them to go to Galilee, and there I'm going to meet up with them. Talk about a new view of Jesus. Totally different. He's back, but he's not really back. Not back like we think he's back. Because he's back in a whole different way, right? Beyond the idea of being back. This is what, this is the essence. What they did to him two days prior had nothing on him. Because he won. He defeated and he did, I'm not saying he defeated the soldiers or defeated the, the Caiaphas and the priests and all of those naysayers or Pontius Pilate. He didn't defeat them. He defeated something much greater than that. He defeated sin and he defeated death. And he broke the bondages off of us so that we don't have to be enslaved to sin or fearful of death. And this is why he's telling them, it's not like don't be afraid of this moment, but don't be afraid, period. Because things have changed. And here it is. And I can't say much about this without going to 1 Corinthians 15. One of the great... In fact, when Jesus was buried, Paul in this chapter says that's part of the gospel. That he died according to the scriptures, he was buried and was raised again according to the scriptures. His death, burial, and resurrection is all pictured in water baptism. When we go into the water, it's like we died with Christ, we're submerged in Him in His death, buried with Him, and raised with new life. And this is the essence of the gospel. This is what he said. The gospel is so simplistic that a five-year-old can understand it. You ask a seven-year-old boy in war. Royal Rangers, you ever done anything wrong? You ever did something you know that you should have done? You ever lied about anything to your parents? And, and if they're honest, <laughs> if they're honest, they'll say, yeah. They say, well, Jesus died for that. He died for our sins. All the junk in our lives, he died for that. And he knocks at the door of your heart, and he wants to come in and wash all that out of you. And he will do it. Do you want him to come into your heart? Do you want to open the door of your heart? It's a, a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old. There's people in here that probably came to the Lord before they were in double-digit years, and I'm one of them. And it wasn't like I got saved because I went to church. It was I got saved because something happened to me. It wasn't a decision I made. Something happened. I couldn't understand what happened. I knew this. That I felt lighter. I felt, I felt a weight off of me. I couldn't tell you anything other than that. I didn't know about justification by faith. That was a term I wouldn't know what to do with that. But why, can't, why do we understand? Because it's so simple a child can understand it and receive it and truly, truly listen to me. Don't ever underestimate the capacity of a child to be born again as much as a 50-year-old or a 35-year-old or, or someone in their 60s or 70s. They can all come to Christ. 
And it's possible for a child to have this awareness that I got sin that I need him to forgive me of. This is uh, near the finish here, if you've got your notes in front of you. 1 Corinthians 15 is just a chapter you need to read today. If you haven't read it this weekend, just need to read it. I mean, he talks about all of the things about resurrection. But if there's no resurrection, there's no hope. No hope. Like my Muslim friend that we share peacefully now, we have a good relationship. And I said, Russ, if there's no death on the cross and no resurrection, we don't have anything. I says, Islam says neither of those things happen. Because he told me, he says, we basically serve the same God. I says, no, we don't. When you and Islam says that Jesus never died on the cross, maybe Judas was the one who died on the cross. They say that. That they got somebody and made everybody think that Jesus died on the cross. That's what Islam says. So there's no resurrection. There's not, none of that happened. They claim that none of that happened. I did say to him, I says, Russ, listen. You say, Islam says that Jesus is in heaven waiting to come back to tell everybody that Islam is the way to go. Now that's kind of supernatural there, isn't it? That he's somewhere up there. Why couldn't he be crucified and raised again? Because that's our faith. If, if that doesn't happen, look at verse 16. I think it's verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. There's not even hope there. And those who have already fallen asleep in Christ are lost. There's no hope for those, our loved ones, that we believe are spiritually in heaven waiting for Jesus to return with them and for us to join them in that celestial city, right? That, that's our hope. You think about the, the, yesterday was the 20th anniversary of Columbine. And there was a lot of powerful testimonies that came out of that. And then you had the Sandy Hook, horrific, catastrophic thing that happened with children, small children, elementary children. And you think what an atheist would say to them. To like, sorry, this life after life is just a myth. It's a hoax. There's nothing to it. And there's even people who have said when these disasters happen, they even kind of mock, uh, we don't need your prayers. We need better laws. And what they're, what they're saying is that we don't believe in life after life. We don't believe in the sanctity of life. We just believe we need to have more restrictions. And all the restrictions in the world does not change a human heart. If there's no resurrection, there's no salvation. And if there's, or there's no hope and there's no salvation, he says you remain in your sins. The idea of eternal life is not what saves us. It's the realness of eternal life that saves us. It's the substantive work of Jesus in our heart. 
It's the cross, it's the cross working in our hearts, the resurrection working in our hearts. We have hope, we have salvation, we have peace because he rose again. And the last thing is this. If there's no resurrection, there's ultimate misery in the place. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, I'm going to give you this out of the King James. So somebody ought to say amen. Amen. If in this life only we have hope in Christ. I remember Carl Strader saying, you know, living the Christian life is so good. If there's no heaven, it's still worth living. He says, no, it isn't. If you take away that, you take away everything. And he says, we don't go through life and the difficulties of life because like, there's so much good about it. It doesn't matter if that is not true on the other end. And I think Paul addresses that. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. NIV says we are to be most pitied or something like that. There's a misery. I just see people who need happiness, right? You ever see people who just need to be happy? The ultimate happiness is Jesus. The ultimate misery is no Jesus. And boy, the message, really, I like what it says. And the praise team can come up. If all we... This is out of the message, okay? It's not a translation. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we are a pretty sorry lot. We are the ultimate misery if there's no resurrection. But we have instead of misery, we have the ultimate hope. We have the ultimate salvation, the ultimate peace. There's a deep misery in some people's lives that can only be displaced by the breath of God with eternal life. Marshall used to say, Pastor, happiness is a choice, and I choose to be happy. And he meant it. Well, I understand where he's coming from, but there's an innate joy and relief when you're not afraid of Jesus coming back. In fact, it's just the opposite. You look forward to it. You hope for it. You can't wait to see Him. You can't wait to experience the reality of seeing Him face to face the living God that no man can look on right now in the state we're in. We wouldn't be able to live. But we're going to be so redesigned and so changed, the veil is going to be pulled back and we're going to see Him just as He is. And all of the splendor and all of the glory, we're going to be there. I just don't think the streets are going to be commanding too much of our attention. Or the scenery, I think it's the throne that's going to command our attention. You know, the, the misery in people's lives is probably due to an absence of Jesus. An absence of Jesus. 
Jesus offers you and I hope this morning an assurance that today he reigns. He is the king today. He reigns. He will reign tomorrow and he reigns forever. The question is this. Does he reign in your heart? Or are you still on the throne? The four spiritual laws. Anybody remember that little booklet? Campus Crusade for Christ, the four spiritual laws. Had this little diagram of a chair. And we're sitting on the chair. We're in charge. And everything around us is chaotic. The next drawing is a chair and a circle. Well, there's a cross there. Christ is enthroned in your life, and everything is comes to order. There's some of you in this room that you just feel like something's missing. Something missing. You might be assured of having the Lord, but just something is amiss. Would you stand with me? Something is missing. I remember Mark Rogers telling me there was a time that he and Linda Mark is here today. That he and Linda came to the conclusion one day, leaving church, there's something missing than coming here every Sunday and going through these motions. There's got to be more. Lord, I pray this morning for those who are at a place of crying out in their souls. Lord, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. There's, there's something missing in me. Please fill me. Please bring the remedy to my heart, my mind, my life. And on this Easter morning, I can tell you he's alive. He died for you. He was raised from the dead so that you could have his kind of life. Not the life that you feel so unfulfilled in. There's a life beyond that. And if that is you, sir, if that is you, ma'am, would you approach him like those women did in reverence and awe and lay hold of his life? Pastor, there's something missing in me. I need God to do something in me. Would you come and stand here? We're going to pray this closing prayer.